What is up, guys? Welcome to the Reborn Podcast. My name is Ashley Horner. I'm here with my co-host, Blue. How's it going? What's up, everybody? Hey, babe. Whoosh. I don't know what I'm supposed to do back then. Kaka. Okay. If um, our last episode that we had, we did. Blue said that he needed a call sign. No. Or I need, what is it? It's a challenge in reply. So I do like kaka, and you do like. I don't know, like make an animal noise. An animal noise? Any animal noise. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I would like to do something fierce, but I don't know. Like ribbit. Ribbit. <laughs> I don't think that sounded very real. No. Okay, if you guys want to. <laughs> we'll work on it. We're still. You have to so go back and listen to our last it, yeah. episode whenever we talked about uh, Blue was saying that he needed. A call. It's not a call sign. It's, what is it? It's just a challenge and reply. So it's just like a a noise that I make, and you reply back with a similar noise that we both understand and know, and then and then like so that that way we verify who each other are. Since we got the call sign, oh sorry, the reply and challenge and reply. Challenge and reply. I've never heard of that before. Um, today today is a really special episode. It is the last episode of 2021, and I want to go back and kind of talk about some of the podcasts that I have uh, had the opportunity and the privilege of, of some of the guests that I've had on the Reborn podcast. And this podcast is dedicated to some of the rad humans that I've had on my podcast for the Reborn podcast. Some of them I would actually like to have back on the podcast uh, because I, I believe they offer so much value to the listeners. And um, man, I even like take notes when I'm listening to some. I was going to say you have some pretty cool people on this podcast. I do. the The first one, uh, the first one that I want to highlight is Clint Emerson. He is a retired Navy SEAL. Is he? Would he be a cake eater? I'm not sure. So a couple podcasts ago, I'm pretty sure you told you said that Andy Stump was a cake eater. Yeah, I know Andy Stump's a cake eater, and then I also know they, Jack Carr is a cake eater. What What does that mean? Um, you have to explain that. To yeah, they're, listening. Just, they're they're not. Well, I think Andy Andy converted from <laughs> converted um, enlisted to officer, so he he joined the cake eaters. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's that's right, and I know Jack. I know he's an officer, so he definitely eats cake. So if you're an officer in the military, yeah, if you're, you're an a cake officer eater. in the military, sorry, you're a cake eater. And that's then what if you're not? What if you're not a enlisted? View you. <laughs> what if you're not a cake eater? You're a what? If you're not a cake eater. You're a sled dog. A sled dog. You're an enlisted. Got it. So, so we don't know if Clint's a cake eater. I can look it up. Hang on, I'll figure it out. You keep. You go ahead. So Clint. Clint, Clint Emerson, uh, he's a retired Navy SEAL who he served more than 20 years uh, in the SEAL teams. He is the author of the books, The Right Kind of Crazy, My Life as a Navy SEAL, Covert, Operative, and Boy Scout from Hell. It was awesome having Clint on the show because especially as a female, I mean, just everybody in general, but specifically for females, and I know this because obviously I am one, but he does a lot of... Um, preparedness stuff and tactics. So always being prepared. And 
I brought up a couple situations at American Brew. We talked about when I had the stalker um, over a year ago that flew in to find me. Um, we talked about, you know, as a business owner, what are some steps that I can take to ensure that my staff feels safe after hours, how to, um, how to illuminate the outside areas, even of your house. Um, and it was really cool to have him on the podcast to really seriously sit down and, and talk with him about how you, uh, can just be better prepared. Um, he is off also the author of a hundred deadly skills series. And I have that book. I actually purchased that book um, before I even really knew who Clint Emerson was. I just thought that his, the book was really interesting and it was a cool book to be able to put on your coffee table, uh, like a hundred deadly skills, like just things like little things that you could learn that from even household items that you have laying around that you'd be like, Oh, I never, even thought that I could use this or, you know, Clint, we talked about how a condom can hold a liter of water or a couple liters of water. Um, so just, so yeah, just some That's stuff like quality. that. Yeah. That just stuff like that, that I, I didn't even know. Um, so this year we had Clint on the show, um, and he just discussed all the practical tips and everyone can help keep themselves safe and secure. Um, even when they're in dangerous situations, did you yeah. see? So I just confirmed uh -oh. he is don, don, a sled don. dog. Oh, Clint's a sled dog. Nice. All right. Let's, uh, also, wasn't he the one who did the situations, right? So yeah, so he so he has a podcast. It's called um, "Can You Survive This Podcast." I, I was on his podcast. I was going to say I think that is super cool to yeah. like be like kind of like have a situation pre-staged, and mm -hmm. it's like, all right, this is what happens. Yeah, like how do you respond? Because mm -hmm. I'm a big believer too of like visualization, and then also like if you can talk your way through things you are better prepared. You can fall back on those basics because you verbalize them. Yeah. It's the same thing as like handling a weapon system. If you can talk yourself through the entire weapon system and say exactly what you have to do while doing it, then you know that weapon system. If you can't put words to what you're doing, then you you most your basic baseline is way too low. Then when you are, when stress is in, introduced you you will fail mm -hmm. in in my opinion that might be a little extreme but that's like I, I think it's cool when you can verbalize in a situation what you are going to do yeah. i think that's so cool one of one of the questions that he asked me on his podcast and you can check out the podcast that i did with him it's called can you survive this podcast but he it was basically like if i was going to an expo or something you know, he was asking me like, what type of shoes would I wear? And it came down to, I shouldn't be wearing heels in a crowded expo. Or if I was going somewhere for an appearance or like a speaking engagement that I need to wear something that I could basically run in. Yeah. Not flip flops, not flip, but I feel like I, I would just kick those shoes off so fast. But cause if I'm going to like a nice speaking engagement where I'm being so, paid to speak. I'm not going to show up in my penny loafers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have a dual purpose, right? Heels are a great weapon. That is true. Yeah. So, so get the super spiky ones. 
if you're gonna if you're gonna get them, get a good high quality one that you can use to stab somebody. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. I like that. All right, let's uh let's bring on his portion of my interview with Mr. Clint Emerson um, on the Reborn Podcast. If you, uh, you know, with all the background and everything that you have, if, if you could recommend five things that is it, is it being like equipped as in having, uh, certain items or supplies on you to be able to escape these situations, or is it just always setting yourself up? Because I know whenever I was on your podcast, you know, we talked about like, if I went to a big speaking engagement and I have had stalkers, I've had, I've had to be escorted out of big expos before I've had to be escorted to my room before because people were either following me or hanging around. Um, like what, what would be some recommendations that, that you would give just normal, ordinary people, uh, to help better be prepared? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a big question. I'll kind of keep it simple. Um, first, if you're a single, if you're a single lady, you know, uh, it's kind of, I joke about it, but it actually works. And that is to go buy a pair of size 12 cowboy boots and put them outside your front door and your back door. Mm. And, uh, any predator that's going to come knocking at your apartment or your home, they're going to see those boots <laughs> and think twice about potentially coming in and disturbing your night's sleep. Um, I just, I you just know, have, for, I just have to ask you why cowboy boots. <laughs> well, because shit kickers are kind of intimidating to right. uh, you know the average guy. You know, you want to Cow- if you've got a bull rider in there. You know, that's right. That's, yeah, there you go. Cow- cowboys are the real deal, man. They don't mess around. Yeah. Well, real cowboys. Yeah, real, that's right. Real cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, that, I mean that's one kind of cool cool trick. Uh, you know, when you talk about things you can do around your property that are kind of like that, you know, is, you know, when you talk about burglaries and and people that want to take things from you, they don't like that unpredictable target, right? Neither do we as SEALs. We don't like an unpredictable target. So if we see, you know, kids toys or dogs or any of that type of like anything that can be alerting, anything that could catch you off guard, it's like, forget it. I'll go to a different house. So whether you have dogs, whether you have kids, doesn't matter. But if you make it look like you've got kids, like a skateboard leaning against the wall just outside your front door um, or a ball in your front yard or the signs that say, hey, I've got a dog. Yeah. um, that, That keeps a lot of folks away. Now, when we talk about, you know, as we move kind of in through these layers of security to yourself, and, you know, that everyday carry thing that's become very popular over the years. And, you know, that there's a lot of those tips inside 100 Deli Skills. I, you know, I, I joke about it, but once again, it's a real deal yeah. and it can help you is that is a handcuff key and a razor blade. What mm. you can't get out of one will get you out of the other, right? So, and you can put them in the soles of your shoe or all your shoes and then forget about it. So whether your hands are restrained behind you or in front of you, you can always squat down and get to your shoes. And then, uh, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking notes. <laughs> yeah. I'm being serious. Yeah. No, it, it, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people want to put it in their waistline and all that, but that means, okay. I mean, I like to put things in a place where, Hey, I know I put them in my shoes and they're there forever. They're not going away. And now do, do I have issues going through security at an airport? Yes. Oh. There's times, there's yeah. little times you forget, but for the most part, 
um, having something like that confiscated, it's not like you're losing any money over the deal, right? Handcuff key is 50 cents on Amazon and, and you can buy a box of razor blades, you know, for 50 cents at a grocery store. So it's not a big deal. And, and I, I put them everywhere. Um, and that way I just know that they're always there. And if something unpredictable happens, then, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of ready for it. Are you talking um, about, are you talking about like a box knife razor blade? It, yeah, you, or they, just, you obviously they come in a lot of different formats. Mm. It can be an exacto knife blade. Mm. Those are pretty cool. Um, and you've got to, you know, using our the world favorite duct tape or, you know, uh, yeah, how, tape. How would you put that in your shoe? Yeah, you want to almost create like a duct tape handle on the razor blade. And then you want to dog ear the tip so it doesn't poke through anything and accidentally stab you. Right. So you're basically put, yeah. kind of making your own makeshift but you're trying to keep it as thin as possible so that yeah. you're not, you don't feel it underneath your, the sole of your foot all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, super simple, right? I mean, the other big one is, you know, especially in traveling abroad is cash. You know, I don't carry cash that, as much as I used to, but when I go overseas, like I carry enough cash separate from my wallet, mm. um, that can get me out of a situation, you know, it, it, bribery is illegal in the United States, but it is a second form of income for most law enforcement in most countries, believe it or not. And mm. it can get you out of more trouble than it will get you in um, by having an adequate amount of cash. Um, and the, and, and the then, key uh, to that is to keeping it separate from your your wallet. Like if your wallet, if you lost, somebody stole your purse or if you just got in a bad situation, right. the cash is separate on you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big believer in don't don't put all your gold in one basket, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Spread it out over yourself, and you know, even go as far as having a dummy purse or a dummy wallet, right? Mm-hmm. It's got some business cards in it from random folks. It's got maybe a you know a couple of bucks in it. It looks real, so that when you give it up, they feel like they got something. Mm-hmm. But you have the rest of your money and credit cards in other places, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, spread it out. Um, there's a lot of like you know concealable money, like waist bands that kind of go underneath your pants or underneath mm-hmm. your shirt and all that. I think that stuff has its place, but man, I just, I like to spread it out in the different pockets I've got going on. You just know that, all right, my left front pocket is the one I'm giving up to the idiot on the street, you know, right. um, or whoever, you know, comes your way. Um, you know, and then awareness, awareness is, you know, we talked about it, we hit on it. It's boring. Situational awareness has been overused. Uh, and underutilized. So mm-hmm. once again, I try to keep it simple and I break it up into four things, right? So personal awareness, look in the mirror before you walk out the door. Okay. So am I wearing anything that offends people or offends the culture or the community I might be visiting today? You know, if you're like me and you're all tatted up, maybe I should put long sleeves on, you know, um, or take off the Solomons and put on some penny loafers, right? We can all identify team guys in a heartbeat. And those of you listening know what I'm talking about. If you live on the West Coast or the East Coast, you're looking for Solomons, you're looking for the Sunto watch or the Garmin. There's all these indicators that says I'm an alpha male. And that's great. Yeah, (laughs) I'm wearing them right now. These are the readers from Gators. Um, But there's, there's great times to look and be like the alpha male, without a doubt, especially when you're home, it's okay. It wards off more trouble than it does not, especially in the U.S. Um, but when you're traveling abroad, then that's where you kind of want to 
you don't want to be the American. You want to just blend in and be questionable. Like maybe you're France, maybe, maybe you're from France, maybe you're from Canada, right? maybe you're from Switzerland. You know what I mean? You don't want people to look at you and go, Oh yeah, he's got a ball cap on and sunglasses and Americans are the only ones that wear that crap. <laughs> so, you know, you got to take the ball cap off, take the sunglasses off and uh, try to look like everyone else. Really. That's personal awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, And it goes a long ways because when you talk about the next one, which is third party awareness, uh, they, they, we gravitate to how people walk, talk and dress, which is your personal awareness. So if you're subduing yourself and then you know that, Hey, anyone can look at me, judge me, scrutinize me and form a conclusion in seconds. We do it all the time, sitting in the airport, people watching. We look at people and there's the people that get by in the background that you never notice. And then there's the ones that you actually notice, right? Mm -hmm. Your goal next time you're at the airport is look at the ones that you're not noticing, like try to find them. And you'll all of a sudden realize like, oh, that's how I should dress. That's how Mm -hmm. I should walk. That's how I should act. Right. So third party awareness is essential because that includes bad guys, good guys, law enforcement, foreign intel services. That's everyone around you. And um, your goal is to, okay, how do I, you know, navigate through those seas of people without any of them noticing, but you, you're recognizing the fact that you could be noticed at any given time. Um, and then you have cultural awareness, right? Which is tied in to, the, to both third party and personal. Cultural awareness is really just doing some research before you go anywhere. And that applies to here in America, you know, um, we're a mixing bowl. So you could find yourself in Dearborn, Michigan, where there's 800,000 Iraqis and not one sign that's in English. It's all in Arabic. Mm. And so if you're going to do a business meeting there, you might want to know that ahead of time. You might want to know that, you know, how I cross my legs sitting across from a Muslim and I show the, show the soles of my feet will probably offend them or, you know, different gestures, right? That's it's, it's etiquette and protocol that mm-hmm. can go a long ways in making friends rather than making adversaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course you have situational awareness, which is, you know, the alligators in the boat, the alligators just outside the boat and then the alligators that are in the, that are on their way, right? That's mm-hmm. what you're looking out for with situational awareness is, you know, that three meter bubble and then outside of it and then beyond it and uh, making sure you're kind of paying attention, um, especially to what's close to you. Next up, uh, one of my uh, favorite guests that I've had on for 2021 was Melissa Urban. She um She is the creator and the founder of the Whole30 program. And what I love about her is just a badass businesswoman, business person, female entrepreneur. And she has taken the Whole30 program and has created this massive community uh, behind it. And what I love about what Melissa Urban is doing is... um, she adds so much value to people's lives and she goes all in, uh, you know, with, have you, do you ever do, well, you've never done like a whole 30. I have no idea what whole 30 is. What is whole 30? So whole 30 is basically, it's just whole, like eating from the earth, like whole foods. But, but, but what she does is she's, she breaks it down and makes it so crazy simple because I mean, especially going into the new year's, 
the number one reason, well, there's, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the major reasons why people just give up on eating healthy is because they, they make it like super complicated when it's actually quite simple. They make it super complicated and you guys make changes that, um, you know, you make changes overnight that you should have made over the course of like five months. And whenever you make changes so, so rapidly like that, it's really hard at times to, uh, to just to stick with it and to adhere to the things that you've changed. So with the whole 30 program that Melissa has created, it, it really kind of allows, uh, and gives you just structure for an entire lifestyle change. Yeah. It sounds like kind of making the, the, um, diet, if you want to call it that more of a habit and a, like a lifestyle rather than just a supplemental, Hey, I want to lose weight kind of thing. And did she, did she write a couple of books too? She did. So she, um, she is, I believe she's a New York Times. Yeah. She's a New York times bestselling author six times over, um, about the program. But she's also a popular speaker on the topics like even entrepreneurship, um, fitness, and of course, nutrition. So she has a podcast too. It's called Do The Thing Podcast. Um, but she's featured all over. I mean, I know that if you haven't heard the name Melissa Urban, you've probably have heard uh, the program called Whole30. Um, but she's been featured in outlets like the New York Times, People, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Dr. Oz, and Good Morning America. So go, uh, let's, we're going to bring her on and listen to a couple of her clips, but definitely go check her out and see what Whole30 is all about. I really kind of want to dig into the whole 30. I think this is such an awesome segment for, for right now with the, with the reborn listeners, because there's a lot of stress right now going on in the world. And I think that, um, how some of us deal with it. I, and and I like to kind of preach this to, um, all of my followers and and the listeners on the reborn podcast is you can control what is right in front of you. You can control, um, what you put in your mouth. You can control, what you're drinking, you can control your activity. Like there's things outside of our control. There are so many outside pressures and stress right now in the world, but you can control what you eat. Um, so I want to talk about, uh, I just kind of want to open up the show with, I want to talk about the whole 30 program and why you created the whole 30 program. What kind of, um, I guess led you to create the whole 30 program. And, um, yeah. Can you just talk about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, the Whole30 started as a two-person self-experiment in 2009. So I was very into CrossFit at the time. I was really into my own performance and recovery. And we were sitting around after this really difficult Olympic lifting uh, session in Boston. And my co-founder and I were just kind of talking about what it would be like if we kind of cleaned up our diet, just that last like 20%. If we really focused on only eating anti-inflammatory foods, for a full 30 days. Like, I wonder what would happen to our performance and our recovery. And I remember at the time I was eating Thin Mints straight out of the sleeve because I had just exercised and I had earned them. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. I would totally do that. And he was like, well, why don't don't we just start right now? And I'm a recovering drug addict and all of the things that made me a really good addict make me very good at these kinds of challenges. So I was like, okay, handed my Thin Mints to my friend Zach and 
began this 30-day self-experiment. And I really was hoping to see some performance and recovery improvements, but it was such an incredibly transformative experience in every area of my life. My energy got better. My sleep got better. My mood was happier. I felt more self-confident and I showed up in a more present way. And it highlighted for me all of the ways that I was using food in an unhealthy fashion to reward myself, to show myself comfort, to self-soothe, to punish myself, to relieve anxiety. And in the absence of those foods for 30 days, I learned other coping strategies, how to sit in discomfort. So at the end of those 30 days, I feel like I had a profoundly improved relationship with food, like something that really stuck And so I decided to share about it on my little CrossFit blog and maybe a few hundred people said, that sounds interesting. I would want to try that. And that was really the start of the first whole 30. So how did you like, what was your approach to cutting out? Like, was there a method to like cutting out certain foods? Yeah. And like, did you, cause for me, like my, uh, like kind of behavior, like I, like I'm fine with being super repetitive, like with what I eat. So I can just like, almost like eat the same thing, like over and over again. Uh, I mean, some people can't do that, but how was your approach? Like, did you just become like obsessed with just like eating, like eating everything or like, yeah. like uh, the same things or how was that? We, we based the foods that we eliminate on anti-inflammatory research that was coming out at the time from Dr. Lauren Cordain and Rob Wolf, some of the founders of kind of the original paleo style approach. Mm-hmm. And so we eliminated foods based on kind of the scientific literature that said these foods can be problematic, right? They're not bad. We're certainly not eliminating them because they're bad, but they can be problematic. And the way that you decide how they work for you is to pull them out for 30 days and then reintroduce them and compare your experience. So I was already eating largely a whole food based diet, but I had a lot of like low fat dairy. I had a lot of whole grains, like very much sort of a USDA or almost like a traditional like bodybuilding diet at the time. So I was pulling out a lot of dairy. I was pulling out some grains and replacing it with, you know, vegetables and fruit. I can also eat the same thing on repeat kind of all the time. And I find that that most people kind of stick to the same like eight to 10 meals in their rotation anyway. So it was pretty easy for me just to swap a few things out, add more veggies and fruit, include more healthy fats. Um, And like I said, I'm very good at like, oh, this is my plan. I'm just going to do this plan. It's like not hard for me to stick to it. So Uh yeah, that was kind of how I approached those first 30 days. Yeah. I know that you've written a little bit about uh, just kind of like a long year fitness journey and dealing with some substance abuse. Um, can you, can you talk about like how that, like, what was it about that? And what were the first steps that you took that made you want to make a change in your life? Can we talk about that a little bit? Of course. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an addict in recovery. I've been in recovery for 21 years now. It's been a very long time, but I spent five years using after experiencing some trauma at the age of 16 that like, I didn't know how to process and didn't have the tools or support to process. And I think, you know, I had some very supportive people in my corner when I was using. I had a boyfriend at the time that was incredibly supportive and really helped me kind of get into and get through rehabilitation. I have a ton of privilege in that area and that my family was very supportive. I went back to a job that held my job for me while I was in rehab. Like Mm. I had all of these factors kind of setting me up for success in life after I still relapsed after a year. Mm. That's still like a part of my journey. And it's a very common part of an addiction journey. But after that relapse, that was when I realized that if I really wanted to maintain my recovery, I had to change every single aspect about myself. I had to become a healthy person with healthy habits. And I had to see myself as that way. It was no longer 
I could no longer afford to tell myself a story that I was unlovable, that I was unworthy, that I was a bad person because of my past behavior. I had to really believe that I was this healthy person with healthy habits. And I had to look for evidence every single moment of the day to support that I was. So I started building that evidence into my day. A healthy person with healthy habits would get up at 5 a.m. and go to the gym before they went to work. So I started doing that. They would make new like-minded girlfriends at the gym who like to run more than they like to go out for margaritas. So I did that. Yeah. You know, I, I purposefully tried to build all of these different buffers into my life to support this idea so that anywhere I looked, I could say, yes, that's something a, a healthy person would do. So it's a, it's so true. And you're a living testament to, to this is that you become the sum of the people that you hang out with. I mean, yeah. you had to, and I think that it's important to know, um, you know, obviously you had to have support. You had to have support whenever you decided to make this lifestyle change. And you talk about your relapse and having to go through that and like reminding yourself like that this is who you want to be and this is who you're becoming. But it, it's so important that, um, and I like to say that sometimes like people come into your life and, or the people who have been in your life in your past and, and who you were in the past, like you may not have to completely, um, remove them from your life, but you have, it goes back to what we were talking about, the boundaries. You yes. have to create that space and like that distance. And, and yes. it also like on a positive, um, level, it allows different, a different type of influence to come into your life to be like, Oh, Hey, like, no, I'm not going to go to the bar today to get margaritas. Like we're going to go for a run instead. And yeah. just creating that lifestyle. Um, it is so incredibly important. Next up, we have the one, the only, the great Ethan Supley. Ethan Supley uh, is an actor who appeared in probably a lot of your TV shows um, and the films, including The uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, My Name is Earl, Remember the Titans, which is like one of my favorites, Blow, American History X, Deep Water Horizon, and the list goes on and on. This guy is so inspiring because he was extremely obese, overweight, and in really, really bad health his whole childhood and his young uh, his young adult years of acting. And I can't imagine, and and we talk about this in the podcast, and I'm really excited to bring for you guys to listen to a clip of this. But um, there was a lot of pressure on him and we don't, we don't think about this whenever we, you know, actors and actresses and, you know, they're, they're picked for roles for a reason. And a lot of it has to do even because of their appearance. And so real quick, everybody who doesn't know him, Ethan Supley, I mean, he was the, he was the offensive lineman and remember the Titans, this massive, massive individual. Um, and I just wanted everybody to put, put a picture. I think everybody has seen Remember the Titans. So mm-hmm. that that's the guy we're talking about. And he he's lost. I mean, how much weight did he lose even from that movie? I mean, he was massive in that yeah, movie. I, I would have to go back and actually listen to the numbers on his podcast. And he does talk about it, guys. And you definitely should go listen to it. But I want to say it was like 200, 300 pounds. I mean, he, he was so out of shape and just um, 
I mean, yeah. I mean, just if you look, look at him now, like I follow him, him on social media, yeah. he's a powerhouse. It's incredible. Yeah, he has completely changed his life. But what's interesting is the the pressure that he probably got uh, through just like his acting career because everybody liked him because he was the big the big fat guy and that was the role that he played and uh you know he played it extremely well he was like the funny fat guy and so he has an incredible reborn story um he also has a podcast called american glutton um and he talks to experts and friends um about his journey which has been around two decades and he even talks about when and the time that he's he's had relapses and he's he he'll put on like 50 to 100 pounds so fast. Wow. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't had a relapse in a really long time. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. He has an amazing family, like a beautiful wife and um he has a really amazing reborn story. So I want you guys to go listen to that. Even uh you know the turning point from him and I don't want to spoil the podcast but the turning point for him had to do with whatever he wait, wait, met. Wait, don't, don't, don't spoil okay, it. I'm not going to say you guys you have just, to go listen, yeah, to, go listen, go to, listen it. to it, be inspired. And I want this to be a reminder in his story that it doesn't matter where you're at on your journey. It doesn't matter how far you think you have to go. You just have to start. And that's exactly what Ethan did. And he did have relapses and he has fallen back, but I know that if if this is if this is you and you feel like that you're really struggling on just like making the first steps or even struggling with relapse and falling back to your old habits, go listen to his podcast and be inspired because he does talk about that and he talks about overcoming. So let's uh let's listen to a clip of Ethan's podcast. Let's just talk about that, who you are and what you do. And then we'll, I really want to talk about your reborn story. Sure. I'm a, uh, my name is Ethan Suplee. I'm an actor. I've been an actor for 27 years. Mm. Um, and for the, uh, you know, the majority of my life, I was very overweight. And in my uh, late teens and early twenties, I was morbidly obese and, I basically over the last 20 years have really turned that around. And so now I still, I still act. I just did a movie in Mexico and and I'm back in LA from, from that. But I also do a podcast called American glutton where we just talk about, um, you know, there, there within this space of like health and fitness and stuff, there is so much, um, I guess diversity about like what the end all be all on how to fix yourself is, you know, and, and so I'm open to all of that. I also have my ideas on what I think works the best, but mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not interested in like knocking successes people have had. Um, I'm also not heavily pushing, like, you know, you have to be vegan or you have to be carnivore or something Something you know, those seem to be the extremes in my universe right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've lost about 300 pounds, uh, you know, and and now I just kind of go year to year with physical goals that I set for myself. Um, let, let me let me ask you a question Did you feel pressure from someone of your stature being an actor in the heart of LA? Right? It's a competitive arena. Did you? Did you decide to change your life because you felt pressure from being in that 
being an actor and being in that community or was it because you wanted to change your life or was it a little bit of both? Did you, did you start seeing some like potential hazard health problems? Like, you know, maybe in your foreseeable future that caused you to change. I just think, and you know, whenever I get to connect with people, um, especially people who are wanting to change their life, there has to be a reason why you decided to change your life. Sure. Um, what was your reason or was it because of your girls? Well, it's, uh, oddly, um, you know, I think that there are uh, pressures. I think the pressures on it's 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 very tricky. But if anything, from Hollywood, I had mm. pressures to stay overweight. I didn't have pressures to lose weight from Hollywood because I was um, I filled a category that they yeah. felt they needed. And that image, and yeah that mm. that was my arena. So then. Um, you know, they, that's, uh, clearly a very small part of, of their overall, you know, if you have a pool of actors, the majority of them are not overweight though. I suppose, I suppose that, that, that group is probably growing as, uh, America at large grows. Um, but if anything from them, from, from that group, I, I you know, the, I, I don't think anybody wanted me to be incredibly unhealthy, but it was like, no, you're very successful at mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Don't stop doing this. If you want to be healthy, okay, fine, but don't get fit. You know, um, I, uh, I, the thing that changed it for me was I, for, you know, I was, I was not, um, I was never an extrovert. And so like the idea of being an actor seems like such a silly thing for Mm -hmm. an introvert to do. Mm -hmm. But I found that um, creating that persona was a distraction from my weight and from my feelings and my self-loathing and stuff like that. So in fact, it kind of buffered me from existing as an obese person because uh, there could be, and it's like weird mental games we play with ourselves mm-hmm. where if somebody's looking at me prior to being an actor, they're just looking at me because I'm obese mm-hmm. versus once I was an actor, I could at least think maybe they recognize me from something and mm-hmm. that That's doesn't make me you. feel as crappy about right. myself. Yeah. Um, so really it was uh, meeting the girl who who is my wife and, and becoming involved in her and having some idea about the future, which I never really cared about. There, there was no long-term plan or, or any plan beyond just like, I like to do drugs. Um, I like to hang out with my friends. I, I didn't, I liked acting and I liked to eat a lot of food. And that was like, that was my life. So just getting through the day with as much kind of like base, um, debauchery as I could. That was my, that was what I enjoyed doing um, while also being a bit of an introvert. And so I met this girl and for the very first time, there was a different sh- idea. There was a new perspective on life that I hadn't ever had before. And so I got sober and I, you know, and then I didn't immediately go on a diet cause I wasn't even thinking in those terms, but after sometime being sober, I started thinking about the future with her. And I was like, there's no future with her if I don't change. Yeah. Um, and so I started changing and it took a long time to, 
you know. Were you, it, were you scared? Were you scared of the changes? And how long in the course of like you kind of, because I'm sure in your mind, you probably had this conversation, like, you know, you started thinking about oh, like, maybe I should change some of the things that I'm doing, or maybe I should, you know, change my path and like my lifestyle. Right. Cause it's like the longevity of your lifestyle. Um, was there, was there a long time of like, you know, like the extent of you having this conversation in your mind with yourself before you actually executed it? Um, or did it just kind of gradually like organically happen? It was the weirdest thing. And it's a very difficult thing for me to talk about simply because I don't know how to put into words. Um, it's so weird. I was f over 500 pounds mm. and the minute this hit me that there was no future with this girl if I didn't physically change myself. Um, it was like, oh my God, I have to, the only person I need to talk to about that is her. Mm -hmm. And there was the feeling that if I, if I talked to her about that, I was going to let her know that mm -hmm. I was obese mm -hmm. as though she didn't know Already that. Know. Right. Yeah. So it was this very confusing thing. It happened very quickly because the moment I had this like kind of wake up realization, um, it was like, oh my God, I couldn't think about anything else. Um, I, I, I needed to begin immediately because it seemed to me that either, either I did nothing and mm -hmm. lost her and I could concoct a thousand reasons why... I lost her and just continue this life. But it was this glimpse of this fantasy life that I had had that was so not in the cards for me. Mm -hmm. um, having somebody love me and, and having this life where we like get to have kids and do normal stuff. Like I just didn't think of myself as a normal person. I thought of myself as, uh, like an object, like an object almost for just television, like, like an actor. Just wrong, bad, gross, yeah. mm. not worthy of love, not mm. worthy of, of, you know, having a house and kids. And I had to seek pleasure in, in these really kind of gross things that mm -hmm. didn't ultimately bring me pleasure. The pleasure was very immediate. And then went away and I felt like crap. Mm -hmm. And so this like very pure thing that I had, I was like, Oh my God, I, I really want that. Mm -hmm. And what's the formula to, to make that work? Because I know any day she's going to wake up and go like, wait a minute, what, who are, what, what am I doing with this yeah. guy? You know? <laughs> um, so it was really just, uh, having this little bit of a, a moment where I like told her the secret, like, guess what? I'm really overweight. And, and she was like, oh yeah. And I said, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I was crying and, and like saying like, I'd like to change. Yeah. And she was like, great. So that's not really that hard. Like you can change. And I was yeah. like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I'm like going to turn myself over to you because right. I don't know how to do any of this. Yeah. Um, and then I just kind of took her advice for a while until mm -hmm. I got my feet under me and I was like, okay, now I understand how to change mm -hmm. and then took over and, and did it, you know, with her guidance and, and, and like always 
as a team, but also, you know, it's like. She was allowing you to be your own person through yeah, your journey. I, yeah. I really like, I like in, in today, I am very much about like personal responsibility and that right. works for me today. Yes, yes. But I found that as an addict and um, as a person who had real problems with food, that there does come a point where like, I don't know what to do. I, mm-hmm. I need somebody's help. And, and if I'm going to take their help, I really need to just stop listening to myself and mm-hmm. do what they say. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I had to do that forever. There did come a point where I was like, okay, now I can, in this new moment, start to pay attention. I'm, it's, I'm a safer uh, vessel for myself. I can now take on responsibility myself. And, and that's basically the evolution that was the evolution. All right, next up, we have one of my favorite girls, uh, Margot Alvarez. She is the CEO of Goat Wine. I had her on the podcast in 2021. And I love Margot because she is an athlete. Uh, she's part of the First Form family, which I got to meet her whenever I went out to Summer Smash. And I have actually, it's so weird how like the, the, world is just kind of interconnected. I've actually, I tried her wine several years ago, never knew her. Like I just, I thought the, actually, I I know everybody's going to agree with me and I can't be the only one. Whenever I go to pick out wine, I really love like basically 90% of that. The picking and the choosing comes from the label of the wine. (laughs) Yeah. What is the wine? What is the coolest wine bottle? Honestly, honestly, it's the, the goat wine, the, it's G O A T, but it has like this goat head on it. And it just says goat greatest of all times. So I'm not sure if that's what her, her goat wine stands for. And, and maybe it does. I actually, maybe she talks about that in the podcast and I've just forgotten, but, um, she, yeah, she's a, she's a winemaker. Um, I don't know like what I look for in labels. I love she well, has most really, of the time, really I'm the one buying the wine for you. Yeah. So, and it comes from Walgreens. <laughs> I know. We're and super. They usually have a horse on it. Super bougie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like $15 wine bottles. <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah. I wish. Uh, I don't know 19, what the process is. It's either Dark Horse or 19 Crimes. Yeah. I love Dark Horse, 19 Crimes. I, I, it was really cool talking to her and even learning about the process of because their wine's been out for a while, but she doesn't have it in places like Walgreens. And there's probably a lot that has to happen to be able to be in you, you distribution have to places have like, like a that. major surplus supply in mm-hmm. order to distribute. I mean, that wine, you can almost go to any store and you find those two wines we just mentioned yep. everywhere. Like which, even like gas stations and stuff. Which is like cool and all, but like, like you said, this, this wine's unique. special. It's very special. Yeah, it's cool. So maybe it's, better that it's not just in Walgreens everywhere all over the yeah, United States. It would kind of maybe like dilute yeah. how how special the wine is. Um she has an amazing reborn story. Um I don't want to I don't want to ruin the podcast for you guys again, but um she went through something extremely hard. She lost somebody very close to her and actually one of her wines 
uh, that she has is named after this person. It's not the goat wine. It's another wine. And I'm not going to say, say the name because I want you guys to go listen to it. And, um, I, like I, if you're listening to this and and you can like go support goat wines and go find uh, Margot on social media, you can buy her wine and it ships straight to your house and just such a beautiful story. You talk about somebody who's just grinding all the time and that is in it. Just putting in the work. Yeah. And I know like she's already grown so much and um, I know like her, her passion for wine and, and, everything that she's doing, it's just going to continue to, um, just grow and, and just gain even more tracking. So go check out Margot. She is super inspiring. Um, she's overcame a lot of challenges, uh, with being an entrepreneur and just life. And she's going to share all of those with you today. Let's bring her on and listen to a clip with the reborn podcast. So like start getting started, you know, being a, a, an entrepreneur, a business, a business, a human, a businesswoman. Um, what were some of like the, what were some of like the things that you felt like some of the challenges that you went through in the beginning, uh, getting your brand up and going and, and making the transition because you and I are very similar. Like I very much live in the fitness industry, but I also have a restaurant. I have a couple other like business endeavors that, you know, I'm fully into and I'm fully committed to. Um, in the beginning, like whenever you started making the transi- transition over from like fitness to, to being like this female badass entrepreneur, um, what, like, what were, what were some of the challenges that you faced like early on? Uh, one of the biggest would be capital, being able to find the resources and mm-hmm. things that you need to get the business going. Um, people make the joke in the wine industry. Like if you want to make a million dollars, you need to start with $5 million or 2 million, whatever mm-hmm. it is that you're looking to start. Um, but I found that capital has been one, but also visibility, visibility, especially in the industry. And I imagine in a lot of other industries, how can people see your product or see your brand or see you and have that kind of stand out from any other products out there. So there's tons and thousands of other brands. How do I get my wine to stand out, especially if it's on the shelf with all these other wines that maybe have more capital or more resources or more visibility than I do? How do I get them to see mine mine, mm-hmm. and take mine off the shelf? And so for me, it's been about establishing business relationships with those shops and those restaurants that bring my wine in, traveling to do in-person events, getting people to try the wine. Because, and I imagine it's similar to other products out there. It's like, why would you buy a product you've never tried, right? Mm-hmm. Especially a bottle of wine or a bottle of whiskey. Like I've never had it why do I want to buy this one versus one I've already had? Yeah. I mean, I think those words and and what you said, it's the same across the board. And I tell a lot of like young aspiring, like fitness models or people who are wanting to get in the fitness arena. I mean, that arena too is so saturated. And I I tell these people, like, you have to figure out what is, what is it that makes you different? Like it's Mm -hmm. easy to to look at other people who are, you know, doing something that you like, like, Oh, I want to be like that person. Or like, you know, this is who I aspire to be. It's like, if, if you have to find, like, you have, you have to find out what makes you different. Like why you, and like, what is your, at the end of the day, like, what is your, what is your mantra and like, why, and like getting, eye, like you said, like getting eyes, and like the visibility on your brand and making those connections. But it, it's so important that, I mean, and we live in such a, an, a great country where like we have the freedom to do and to become whoever we want and whatever we want, but it's important that you have to find out like, who do you want to be? You have to be original because if there's already like somebody out there who's doing it and you know, something that's similar, like why, like, you know, 
it, it doesn't make you special and it doesn't make you unique. And I think a lot of times, um, young, young entrepreneurs, like they're almost like so afraid to go out and, and to do their own thing and kind of stand apart or be different. But you know, you guys, if you're, if you're wanting to do that, like that is what's going to make it because you have to be different. You don't want to be the same as everybody else. hundred percent. And you have to also be willing to like have those doors slam in your face and not give up like the ability to persevere and keep pushing through. Like you have to be willing to like get up the next day, the next time. Cause it's like not every single day are you going to have a yes? Not every single day is going to be sunshine and roses. Oh yeah. I would say more times it's like, it's usually like a no or like things don't work out. And I mean, that's the thing too. Like I, I love, I love, love, love working for myself and and being an entrepreneur and, and having my own schedule. But dude, how many hours, how many hours out of the, how many hours do you think you work like in a day or a week? Oh, like 12 days at least or 12 hours a day. Like <laughs> yeah. people are like, when do you stop? I'm like, man, I'll yeah. be on my phone at night, like answer yeah. emails. And I'm like, just disconnect. But it's hard because like you said, that hard. flexibility is great. And having the ability to be your own boss and like, take the time off when you need disconnect when right. you need. But then it's also, it's kind of like, all right, you can continue to be connected, especially now with social media and you can be continue to be connected to work. Yeah. So it's finding that balance, but you're definitely gonna be putting a lot more hours than you think. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, people have to understand that. I just think it's funny. Like when people complain about, you know, or, you know, like having to work 40 hours a week and I'm just like, did you have no idea? Like, you don't yeah. know. I mean, that's the thing. And I feel very blessed because I can take these little pockets out of my day um, to like turn it off and to go be with my kids or like to do, you know, things, but the work is still there and the work is always there. And it's very mm-hmm. demanding. And it doesn't matter if you're a girl or a guy or what business um, adventure that you're going down, like the work and the grind is there. And so there's, there's rewards for, for being an entrepreneur and there's, uh, um, you know, rewards for being your own boss. But like at the end of the day, you have to be ready for the grunt work and you have, just like Margo was saying is like, you're going to get so many doors shut in your face. But I, I, I definitely think that the, the, at the end of the day, the reward of reaching that success and being like, I did it when nobody else thought I could. And creating a brand and creating a lifestyle for yourself, like that is the best reward and the best feeling um, that I think that we can have as, as business entrepreneurs. Up next, we have uh, Dr. Jen Frabani, who is a widely recognized um, physical therapy, one of the world's top physical therapy influencers. Uh, she has almost 700,000 followers and she covers many of the major outlets, including Shape Magazine, Self, Men's Fitness, Muslim Fitness, CBS, The Rise Podcast, and more. She is the creator of the Mobility Method program, the co-host of the Optimal Body Podcast, and a member of the Women's Health Magazine Advisory Board. Um, on this podcast, Jen and I discussed establishing your style and ignoring expectations when pursuing your dreams. So Jen really suffered a lot in the beginning with uh, imposter syndrome and feeling like that. Do you know what imposter what syndrome is? What is imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is when you reach a certain level in your career, you are in a new work field, um, but you don't feel like that you deserve to be there. So she was a doctor of physical therapy, but she really struggled with like, am I good enough to, to be here? Self doubt. Yeah. So it's like whenever you, 
whenever you have imposter syndrome, it's, it's the feeling of, even though you have all of these accreditations, experience, degrees, diplomas, the job title, it doesn't matter. It's when you, when you are there and, and, and you're living that and you feel as if you're not good enough or that you don't belong in that position. And Mm. in the beginning, she really, really struggled about that. So, and she talks about it. So, um, go listen to that podcast and we're going to bring on a clip and listen to a little tidbit of, uh, my conversation with Jen, definitely follow her on social media and, uh, listen to the full podcast if you can, and you can learn more about how she dealt with imposter syndrome. Uh, let's listen to the clip. Do you find, uh, and cause it's very similar to my journey in the beginning, just, I was an athlete my whole life. And then I got into, um, I wanted to get into, to fitness modeling and I, I was so afraid of in, in the beginning too, whenever I started, I was like, Oh, this is, I, I felt like I had to fit inside this box of, of what a fitness model should be like. And, um, I'm sure it was the same for you. Like you, you know, wanted you, you identify with that and you think in order to be successful or everybody else is doing this and you think that this is how you have to be, or, or these are your limitations. Yeah. And for myself personally, it's, and it seems like you did the exact same thing. The moment that I, uh, I kind of just put my blinders on and I didn't want to be like everybody else. I, you know, I, I didn't try to fit this perfect mold of what a cover model should be like. I was like, I want to have the tattoos. I want to have the grit and the badassery that I, I really was just, it was just, I, it was just coming out everywhere. And I was trying to be just this glamorous model. And I was like, this doesn't, this didn't fit me. (laughs) Did you feel like whenever you, uh, basically you, you, you know, the social norms of what you thought a physical therapist should be. Did you, is that when you just flourished as an individual, like personally and professionally? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I can remember still being in our quote unquote business class of physical therapy toward the end, which was not business. And, and I had met a chiropractor at the time who was doing her own thing. And I saw her working on patients and bringing her table, some like to people's homes and, she held what looked to me like a physical therapy session. And I was like, you're doing my job, but you're doing it on your own and you're not working in a clinic or under someone else. And I was like, that's very interesting. And so I brought that to the attention of our class. And I said, well, would it be possible now we have direct access? And this bill had just been passed when I was graduating, which means a if someone is in pain in California, they don't have to go to a physician first and get a script for physical therapy. You can go straight to a physical therapist. So I said, well, now that we have direct access for clients, can't we do like what this chiropractor is doing and, and bring a table and our tools and go to people's homes and, and build our own schedule? And they said, no, no, that would never work. And I'm like, I'm sitting in a room of 60 something people and you're telling me that this will never work. Like that's not possible. And it blew my mind. So at that point I was like, okay, what can I do to, to see if this is possible? So I still got into the, you know, a a typical outpatient job, a typical private clinic. But then on the side in physical therapy school, I actually bought a table And on the side, I went to a CrossFit gym and asked if they had a physical therapist that they worked with, with their clients or anything like that. And so then they hadn't at the time. So I said, well, you know, two days a week, I could bring my table, leave some cards and, and work on people who might need more help. 
And so I wasn't trying to take from the clinic or anything. I was trying to build my own thing and see, would this be possible? And eventually I quit my clinic job because it was possible. (laughs) And I was doing my own thing and building my own clientele on my own, doing it the way I wanted it to look. And then eventually, you know, it wasn't even long after that, that I realized, you know, I'm teaching on social media, but social media changes all the time. Who's seeing my posts? Who's actually getting helped from it? And and is it really making that big of an impact? So that's when I was like, well, let me just launch an online program. I don't have an email list. I have no idea what I'm doing online, but let me just try it. And that's when I just, you know, I continued to see what's missing and what's not working. And let me see if it could, if I can help in that way. And mm-hmm. that's what I did. Yeah. I so Jen, how are, how are some of your methods different from other physical therapists? Because uh, I'll be honest, I, I've been following you for, for quite a long time. And uh, we were joking about it. Um, even in the intro of the show, like I'm a 30, almost 34 year old. Oh my gosh. Um, beer league men's hockey player that spends a lot of his time hunched over at a computer like this on a phone like this, and just going through the motions of being on an airplane and just completely distorted and having my back just completely messed up. Hockey players traditionally have great posture, but when you look at someone like me, you're like, dude, you're so far from it. You must be the water boy. So I I've always just been very fascinated by your education because I actually take a lot of ways in terms of like breaking in the middle of the day and doing some of the stretches and exercises I take from a lot of your content. And that that's a, that's no pitch. That's hundred percent authentic for the audience here. So I'm just curious in terms of how your methods are different. Could you just explain a little bit more? Like how, how are you, like you said, like, again, you sat in that room with 60 people and people were saying no in that moment, you probably had to immediately begin thinking there's alternatives. There's got to be creativity. So how does that to this day go into your teachings and learnings for the content or even the conversations that you're having with clients day in and day out? Yeah. What I saw at the clinic, which was so interesting, and I and I picked a clinic purposely. One, it was close. It was in Santa Monica and that's where I wanted to be. But two, it had mentorship. So one of the oldest um, physical therapists that was there, he was he would host like weekly meetings and we can ask questions and we can, and he would provide some mentorship. And I really wanted that. However, as smart as he was, and as much as he would help with us and any of our questions, what he did with his clients was the same two exercises for anyone involved in upper body stuff, the same two exercises for anyone involved in lower body stuff. And I was just like, and, and then just a lot of passive treatment and, and it blew my mind. And I'm just like, I feel like you've given up. Because at this point, if people are coming in time after time and barely moving and it's more passive and talking and like social hour, (laughs) what are they actually doing? And it just, it made me really sad too. And so I, and I didn't want to be in that environment of consistently seeing passive treatment and passive treatment means someone's working on you. Right. And the, the client isn't doing a lot on their own. And as much as we had AIDS and we had exercises, I wanted to be doing the exercises with my clients. I didn't want to pass them off. I wanted to see how they're moving. That's the most important part. And in passive, a lot of it is electrical stim, sit with a hot pack, get an ultrasound, get laser. And I'm not going to say that these are bad. However, the evidence behind them isn't strong enough to actually use that full hour and have your, your patient sit there and just do that. And so it really frustrated me. And, and I also 
I'm a little different of a physical therapist as well in terms of like, I don't think that your diagnosis and me telling you exactly what the diagnosis is, is going to be the most pertinent part of your treatment and, and the way that you heal. And I, and I disagree wholeheartedly with a lot of clinicians that just like, well, we need to know the exact diagnosis. We need to tell them, but why? The diagnosis merely tells you what your symptoms are having. And it merely confirms, and I get that some people need that. Like, I need to know that I'm not crazy, right? Like, I'm feeling this pain. Totally. However, it's it's everything that's involved. It's your stress levels. It's your day-to-day, like what you said, sitting at your desk, working on a phone. Like, I need to know what's happening in your day-to-day because the hour that you have with me doing your exercises isn't going to make a huge impact. But what you're doing in your day, what your stress levels are, what you're intaking for food, how your sleep is, what your community is like, do you have support? You know, like all of this has to play a role. And once I started to get my own clients, I had people crying on my tables. I had people releasing emotions in different ways. And I'm like, this, this is what I want to be doing. You know, this is how I want to be impacting and helping people. And you just, it's hard to do that in a clinic that's constant turnover. It's hard to do it when there's other people around you. You don't want to be vulnerable enough to like emote or cry. So it just, I would say for me as a physical therapist, I'm, I'm really wanting to look at you as a whole human. And though I provide exercises and I provide feedback into your body, I want you to tell me what you feel. I'm not going to tell you what you feel. I'm not going to tell you what's best. You're going to tell me based on how you're moving, based on what you're feeling in your body. And we're going to work together in order to find a solution that works for you. All right. Last but not least, we have Miss Marcus Sue Rogers. My favorite. Uh, So Marcus Sue is a local to uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and she, our boys were on the same football team together. I think that she is one of my most favorite, lighthearted, funny people to follow on social media. Yeah. I'll tell you what, watching, watching her social media and like the kiddos. They They have four kids or five kids. They have four. Four, yeah. So one girl, three boys. Our yeah. boys are good friends with their their boys. Talk about just a really good family mm-hmm. and just f- like just very positive, fun. It was so much fun playing football with them. Yeah. I mean, I did have to yell at Marcus Sue a couple of times. Oh yeah, she, she gets, gets into really it. Really into it. The, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So blue blue was you know was coaching. And I, th- I want to say it was like the first game or the second game, but it was the first and the last game. So, uh, and something, so the, the, okay, I we have to set the, we have to set the scene, but these kids are, uh, six, seven and eight. Yeah. This is for flag, yep. flag football, flag football. And there's refs. They're not the most qualified it's, refs, but it is a legit, like the most legit flag football. It's not seven on seven. We play yeah. full 10, 10 kids out on the field specific flags you have kickoff kick return punting mm-hmm. the everything in football is mm-hmm. done and you're expected these six and eight year olds there's offsides there's false starts everything um so this is a very like intense flag football league so the fr- the first game marcus sue started yelling at the ref or something or yelling oh, yeah she started going off oh on the yeah refs. it was the I, but you know what before before the season even started 
she she warned me. She was like, actually, I got kicked out of a, a of a peewee game one time, and I was like, oh, I kind of like you know, I like laughed, and yeah, I think that's funny. I mean, parents, moms get a, like they get passionate, oh, emotional, she, yeah. But she is so just she's like a little fireball. I was gonna say she can be fiery. Yeah, and whenever I remember whenever we first met their family, she just came walking right up like super fast, kid on the hip three kids like holding hands that I was like with a massive just like it was like a beach bag like if you're going to like the beach off of like Disney World and you have like a whole bag of just I mean it looked like she had enough stuff in the bag that could be like five <laughs> kids it was like she was prepared she was prepared and yeah For she's anything but what I love about Marcus soon she reminds me a lot of me whenever I first started my fitness journey so she is a health coach um she started doing health coaching. Um, I think it was like a year ago. It wasn't very long ago. And she started asking me a lot of questions about uh, just like, like, what do you do? Like, what's the first investment that you make when you're, when you're starting to get bigger? Like, do I need to have a website? You know, she started just asking me all of these questions. I was like, you know what? Let's go do a podcast. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about um, why you even decided to get on this path of coaching others. Yeah, she had a pretty big transformation too. She did. Right? Yep. Yep. That's very, so cool. very inspiring. Um, go listen to, we're going to share a little clip with you guys. And she just speaks so beautifully and eloquently. Um Listen to the podcast. Here's a clip, but you got to go check out our whole podcast and make sure you uh, follow her on social media. Here she comes. I just don't think motherhood has to be that big of a punch in the face. Like mm -hmm. I kind of made a point early on, like my, like my kids aren't going to be terrible sleepers and they're not mm -hmm. going to be terrible eaters and we're going to be respectful mm -hmm. and I just sat there and looked at myself one day and thought, man, I have been so hard bound on mm -hmm. not succumbing to these myths about motherhood, um, except for my my personal health. Mm -hmm. Like I I was like, I can't be satisfied with mm -hmm. being like just because I had four kids in five years doesn't mean I have to be overweight and tired all the time. Yeah. Who says that? Mm -hmm. Right. But like we in America, we've like conditioned ourselves for that to be okay. Um, we actually flew out here to Virginia and all, you know, I um all of that kind of manifested because our kids, I wanted to send them to this school here mm -hmm. and we were denied for financial aid three times because, well, you know, living in California, mm -hmm. what we were receiving and yeah. some allowances was higher yeah. and math is math, right? right. Like I wasn't arguing yeah. with the system. Um, but I sat on that plane ride home and I was nursing her and I just was crying because I knew in my heart, like, like they were supposed I, to be at their school. I just yeah. knew when I walked those halls yeah. and I picked up the phone and I called my good friend who I had known for three years, who's been doing this 12, 12 years now. Yeah. And I said, Hey, I don't know what you do or how you do it, but I need it all. Yeah. I need the physical part of the program. Mm -hmm. I want to study and be mentored by you. Uh -huh. And I want to help my friends and family who don't feel good. Yeah. And she literally just said, okay, do you trust me? And that is really what this mm. health business is. It's a transfer of trust because there's yeah. shame here. Yeah. You know, there's shame how we got to that place yeah. for your clients. There's shame. Yeah. And so, yeah, I trusted her and it. That was only three years ago. Two. Two years ago. You two in a few months. So fast. Crazy. I do think the world puts, I, I mean, I've definitely have dealt with that as well as especially 
I mean, I've been a working mother since, I mean, Cash mm. was four months old and Trip was almost two. I mean, I, they've known it no other yes. way. I, and I kind of did it backwards. Like I didn't, I never had a college degree. I never, uh, you know, I, I was actually, I did one year of school and I was going to be a kindergarten teacher. I love it. <laughs> I, I wish you would have been I know. That's why. So that's why I actually I I got the opportunity to like homeschool auto for a kindergarten. Lived your dream. I did, but it was, like, it was so crazy. <laughs> I was homeschooling all of them, and I loved homeschooling auto because you know kindergartens like right. Um, but what what I have found and what I have to constantly remind myself is that that what I'm doing is enough. I the mm. world puts a lot of pressure on mothers, and it's like this. Um, you know, you can call it like the perfect Instagram box where you're always comparing like what these other moms are doing or like, or like, dang, look at their lunch. You know, it's like, yeah. there's always, if, if, if we allow ourselves to feel guilty and feel that we're not doing enough or being enough, it, it, it kind of can spiral us into like this dark hole where we just don't feel like we're measuring up. Yep. And a lot of that has to do with just, I mean, just worldly things that, you know, it, it there shouldn't be any standard of motherhood or like what you can or can't do. I mean, my house is like a mess, like all the time. People are like, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, well, like, you yeah. know, I like I'm not like half the time. Like I have laundry all the time. There's dishes in my sink <laughs> all the time. And, uh, you know, I know that like not every single day is going to be perfect. And it's OK. It's called being a normal human. Right. And have, being a, like a busy, a busy person and being normal. Right. I I kind of had this motto for years, like living in the in the and, like I can be a mom and mm. a health coach, mm-hmm. a good wife and a good mother, you know. And I think what I really found is like just almost just integrating all of it. Mm-hmm. Like that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. It's not like I don't do these different roles. Like it's just like my kids are integrated in every, including on the platform social media mm-hmm. that I've mm-hmm. built this with. You know, they're integrated in all of it and when you really take time to integrate the work and home life Mm -hmm. and just let that become who you are, um, I think I've just found it works a lot better in my home. Yeah. You know, and we delegate. There were some shifts that had to be made. And I think some wives and mothers are a little fearful, you know, oh, well, like when I tell people that like Jim does bed and bath, they're like, what's your bedtime routine? I'm like, I don't know. Whatever happened. I don't know what happened from 6 to 6.30. <laughs> yeah. That's up to Jim. Like yeah, upstairs, right. you know, I just, as long awesome. as I don't, I don't need to know yep. about it. I put my headphones on. And, but there was conversations. And I yeah. did, you know, even speaking back to like your original startup of this conversation, you know, the old quote, you either have a support nurse, you know, successful women have a, two options, a successful or uh, supportive husband. Mm-hmm. Or no partner at all. Or no partner at all. Right. Period. Yeah. And, um, but here's the deal. I have earned that relational capita with Jim Rogers. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I have earned that with him because I have backed him from day one. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where that mutual respect mm-hmm. in a partnership comes from. Mm-hmm. And I, that's not lost on me at how blessed I am mm-hmm. to have his support in all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then that filters down into your children. They're going to model what their papa yeah. does for, yeah. for their you know, whenever you, whenever you took the leap of faith and you're like, okay, Oh, well, let me ask you this. Why did you choose health and fitness? Cause your background wasn't, your background was in like finance and marketing. So why, like, what was it on the plane ride or what was it mm. that you're like, Oh, like this is the route I'm going to take. 
I think because that's where I was struggling. And I think a lot of for time yourself. for myself, mm. I physically wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, I think whatever you're passionate about or whatever you're wanting to start as a, a side gig, which, you know, you, you know this, you treat it as a side gig, it'll always be like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a pivot about 90 days in where I realized how many women specifically felt the same way I did. Yeah. And people were like, I was shocked. I had no idea. You always looked good on Instagram. I'm like, yeah, I wasn't posting pictures. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I was hiding behind my kids. So you just don't know what, yeah. what people are struggling with or the pain and then just really becoming conditioned to not assume anything about anyone. You know, you can't look at somebody and assume you right. know who they are, what they've been through, mm-hmm. you know. And when I've taken a backseat to assumption, it's like opened up this whole new realm of friendships and love mm-hmm. and to answer your question, I I had a need and the need was to get the weight off. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I lost 40 pounds in 17 weeks. Wow. And um, it didn't make my life perfect. Yeah. You know, but I will tell you, um, it does simplify a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the number on the scale is what it is, but um, I'm a more active mother. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have shown up for a coffee date like this because I would have been uncomfortable in my clothes. Two years really? ago, you know, like I'm a better yeah. friend because of yeah. this. Yeah. Um, I'm a much more joyful wife and intimate partner. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we can talk about what people lose, but what you gain yeah. when you kind of find freedom in that um, is a whole different life. And yeah. that made me passionate to go find every, like every morning when I wake up, like I just think there is somebody on that crazy social media world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and all the bad Mm -hmm. there's one person today I guarantee you Mm -hmm. that if I just put my hand down like I can pull them out yeah and that's what it's about is Mm -hmm. like I can't help thousands until I helped one Mm -hmm. so how was it when you so you started coaching so you started working on yourself yeah and then you started coaching can you talk about the feeling of when you realized that what you were doing was like changing lives? Oh, like look at my arms you right have goosebumps. now. Goosebumps. Yeah. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Reborn podcast today. I hope that you had um, just kind of a great time reflecting with me and uh, going down memory lane of some of uh, the the great podcasts that we've had in 2021. I want to wish every single one of you guys a very, very happy holidays and a new happy, happy new year. Um, it's crazy that 2021 is coming to a close this chapter and we are getting ready to start a uh, a new chapter, a brand new chapter, guys, the pages are blank and you are the author of your story. So it's not too late. If you have not thought about some things you want to accomplish in 2022, it's not too late to begin writing that story today. So my name is Ashley Horner here with my co-host blue ribbit. And we are out. We will catch you guys next time. Later, everybody. Cheers.